We are nearing the end. Another week tonight and then next week will be our last two lessons on the meek inheriting the earth. And we've gone through a lot of things. Um, But let's start by saying, kind of reviewing, especially last week's lesson, um, and acknowledging a fact that if meekness is patiently enduring the present in light of the future, and then we wrestle with the fact that many meek, and we mean that in the biblical sense of being meek, not just persecuted, not just poor, not just afflicted, but poor and afflicted and hurting and suffering and patiently enduring those things in the present in light of the future, many of those meek people, God's meek people, God's anav, have died without realizing the hope for which they were waiting, right? They have died in during their present reality, they've died. Their meekness ended in Death, at least for the present, right? And so as we talked about last week, if the meek are going to have the promises that God has made to them, it it implies that the dead will have to be raised, that the resurrection of the dead is inherent in the idea of the meek inheriting the earth. And we talked about 1 Corinthians 15.33 last week, and really, I mean, that kind of stuck in my head, and I hope that it stuck in all of our minds. Paul says, bad company ruins good, what? Morals. And when he says bad company, he's talking about not just bad company like people that use bad language or people that drink or people that, you know, smoke or hang out in bad places. That wasn't the type of bad company he was talking about in context, was it? The bad company was people who say there is no resurrection, that there's not a coming resurrection. And Paul says, This bad company, the people that are saying there is no resurrection of the dead, it will ruin your good, what, morals, right? Because our life and our morality, how we live is affected by what we believe about the future. If we lose sight of our concrete hope in what is coming, it will negatively affect our morality in the present, The only way, Paul ends 1 Corinthians 15 by saying, be steadfast, immovable, always, what? Abounding in the work of the Lord. And you cannot be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord unless you fully and totally grasp on to the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And the heart of that is the resurrection of the dead. So here's what we might say. You cannot embrace the blessedness of meekness without a solid grasp of future promises, right? If this is all there is, and there is no resurrection of the dead, then there is no blessedness in meekness. But if we believe Jesus, that being meek and patiently enduring the present in light of the future, patiently enduring the present, if there's a blessedness in that, in suffering, in hurting, in being persecuted, in being poor, in being the anav, then it's only because we realize and we believe and we firmly grasp onto the hope that the dead will be raised, right? 
And if we believe that, if we firmly believe that, Paul says, I'm willing to fight wild beasts in Ephesus because I believe this. Because I believe this, I don't want to just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die because I believe that we will be raised and I believe that all of the promises that God has made are coming true in Christ Jesus and because of this resurrection and because we have a firm, solid grasp on those future promises, we can embrace a life of meekness of things like turning the other cheek and going the extra mile and loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. I want to explore an idea before we get into the text, and we've got a lot of text. We probably don't have time to explore this idea, but it's been on my mind lately. In fact, I was talking to Holly about this idea, about the bucket list. You know, bucket list, bucket list is the things that you want to do before you kick the bucket, right? The things you want to accomplish before you die, right? And it's kind of, I don't, I don't know that that's been around that long. There was a movie, maybe the movie made it popular. I don't know if it was around before that. I had never heard of it before that. But, but a lot of us, probably a lot of us in this room, have a list of things that you want to see, things you want to do, things you want to experience before you die. I was telling Holly the other day, a couple months ago probably, that the more I embrace the biblical hope that we find in the New Testament, that we find in the scriptures, the less interested I am in a bucket list. I'm not saying you're wrong for having a bucket list, so don't misunderstand me. But I, I was telling her, I, I'm, I feel increasingly uncomfortable with that idea of chasing all of these things that I want to check off of my bucket list before I die. And then I was actually reading a book, and the book was about the things we're going to talk about tonight. And he said the same thing about the bucket list. So I said, okay, Holly, see, I'm not crazy. You know, this guy says the same thing. And I want us to think about why that might be. Think about it this way. Let me give you a metaphor. Think about a buffet. Let's say there's this huge buffet with all kinds of great foods. I mean, there's, this is like any buffet. I mean, there's some great foods on it. And there's some foods that's like, you just skip right over that. You know, and it's some food that you don't really like. And there's some food that you really like. And maybe the really good food's down at the end, you know, where they keep, they hoping you fill up your plate with all the salad. And then you get to the end, you don't get any of the steak and baked potatoes. You know, so they're hoping you fill it up. And you're like, I want to get way down there. Let's say there's this buffet, and if you believe, if you believe that I've got to hurry up and get all the food I can get because my opportunity to eat, the window is closing. It's quickly, rapidly closing, and every second that goes by, I, I have less and less and less opportunity to get the food that's laid out in front of me, so I want to get as much of it as I can. In fact, I want to make a list. This is, I want to get steak, and I want to get shrimp, and I want to get lobster, and I'm going to get all the good stuff. If you believe that the future is, you, the, the buffet's closed, no more food, you can't have any more, that's all you'll ever have, it's done, right? Then, then your mentality and your behavior is going to be one that just chases all of the food you can possibly get, right? That's, that's what most of us would probably do. But if you believed that actually the, the, there's going to be more food to come, in fact, there's going to be the best food to come, that there's going to be better food and there's going to be more eating. There's going to be more enjoying. You're, the time isn't running out to enjoy all of these good things. All of these good things that you're looking down the line and you're like, oh, there's so many great things. Don't, don't worry. You're not going to miss out on anything. If you believe that, well, then your behavior in the buffet line might be totally different, wouldn't it? You might look around and you see somebody, they can't reach the food. There's a small child who can't reach the buffet. Let me serve them. There's somebody in a wheelchair and they can't, they can't reach it. 
There, there's somebody who, who has this disability or that disability or this reason or that reason, and they can't help themselves, so I'm going to help them through the line. Why? Because I've got plenty of time. I, there's more opportunity and more opportunity. I, I'm not going to run out of time to eat and enjoy these good things. Yes, I want to enjoy it. And I'll go through the line. And I'll get what I get. You know, but if you believe that your opportunity to enjoy these good things is not fleeting, then, then you would find yourself serving and helping and not rushing. But if you believe that your opportunity to have all of the good things that life has to offer is fleeting, then you're going to rush through and put yourself at the first of the line. You're going to be like the kids. You remember, right? When you don't have perspective, we, we act like children. Do you remember when we were kids and there would be a potluck? We don't have potlucks as much as we used to, but you know, there'd be a potluck and you're a kid. You wanted to get, I want to be first in line, right? But a little bit of age and perspective tells you it's okay. There'll be plenty, you know? We're not going to run out. It's okay. Somebody else can go in front of me. But when you don't have that perspective of hope of what's to come, then you rush to the front of the line and you say, you can have the leftovers. Let me go first. You have what's left over. You go behind me and take the crumbs. I want to have what's first. But when you have that perspective that says, there's an abundance. There's an abundance of time. There's an abundance of resources. It's going to be okay. You're going to get to enjoy all of these good things. Then, then you serve others and you help others and you're okay going last. But I'm afraid our mentality about the future because we sort of have this fuzzy, ambiguous idea about our future hope. Yeah, you know, I mean, we'll be like ghosts or something. You know, we just kind of have this idea about, well, it's going to be good or it's going to be better or whatever, but we still have this idea, I need to accomplish as much as possible right now. I need to see all the good stuff and enjoy all the good stuff because I have maybe a few years to enjoy these things, so I got to cross it all off of my bucket list. Let me suggest this thought. The more ambitious we are, about our bucket list, the less meek we can afford to be. Does that make sense? I'm not saying it's wrong to have a bucket list. Don't, don't worry. I'm not saying that. But I am saying the more ambitious we are about it, about getting to the front of the line and enjoying everything we can possibly enjoy because we're running out of time, the less meek we can afford to be, right? We're not going to let somebody else go in front of us because they go in front of us. We're losing precious time here. We're losing precious money here. We're, we're losing precious resources here. i got to get it all accomplished. We're less likely to let somebody else go in front of us. We're less likely to spend time loving people and serving people and helping people and just being content in the present because our vision and hope for the future is skewed. But when we embrace a biblical hope, when we embrace a biblical hope that says the meek will inherit the earth, well, then we can afford to be meek. We can afford to have this mentality. Let me ask this question this way. Do you suppose that the average Jewish person in Palestine, when Jesus showed up in Israel, do you suppose that the average Jew had a bucket list? Like, I want to see Rome before I die, and I want to climb this mountain before I... You suppose? I don't think so, right? I mean, they, most of them were farmers or shepherds. They were just one day at a time. In fact, that's the way most of the world is today. Do you suppose that the average Christian, 10, 20 years after Jesus, were they, did they have a bucket list? 
Like their bucket list was, I really don't want to be beheaded today, or I don't want to be thrown to the lions, or I really just want to feed my family today. Now, what is it that we think, right? I mean, we've got this idea, I've got to enjoy it all now. We have the luxury of thinking that way because we were born in the time and the place that we were, but most of the world can't even afford to think like that, has never been able to think like that. Imagine if you were a slave, a slave in first century Rome, a slave in the United States at one time. Do you suppose that the average slave had a bucket list? I want to go this place before I die. I want to see this before I die. I want to experience this before I die. We can afford to think like that simply because we live in the place and the time that we live in. But how are we supposed to really look at the anav, the suffering, those who, as we read last week, Hebrews chapter 11, those who were sawn in two or fed to the lions, those who were pierced, those who were burned, those who died horrible deaths because of their faith in God. How are we supposed to look at them and say, blessed are the anav, blessed are the meek? They didn't accomplish very much on a bucket list, did they? But we have this tendency to think that way. If I don't accomplish these things, then it's a waste or it's a, I came short of my goals. I, I would always think that way when I was young and I, before I was married and had kids, I thought, man, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to go. You know, I'm ready, you know, spiritually speaking, I'm ready, but I want to get married first and I want to have kids first. And then as I, as I started to see the world was a big place and there's all kinds of cool stuff in it, I added to my list. I want to do this and I want to do this and I want to do this. And if we ambitiously attack that, well, I want to make a million dollars before I die or I want to have this job before I die or I want to have a car like this before I die or I want to have a house like this before I die or I want to have this before I die or experience this before I die or go here before I die. The more ambitiously we attack a list like that, the less meek we can afford to be. To say, it's okay. I'm not worried about it. I'm not worried. My time isn't running out. I will never die. Isn't that what Jesus said? If you believe in me, those who believe in me, though they die, yet shall they live. Those who believe in me shall never die. I'm not. My time is never going to come to an end, right? There'll be more time to enjoy all of God's blessings. I don't have to worry about it. So let's think about that for just a second and look at Matthew chapter 19. And I think that this this plays into this. Jesus in Matthew 19, before this portion of the text, about verse 16, there's a young man that comes to him that's rich, right? We know this story and asks about what, what do I need to do to have eternal life, right? And that's what... People, not just Jewish people, but all people have always been the fountain of youth. I want to live forever. Eternal in scripture means for the age to come. What do I need to do to have life for the age to come? What do I need to do to have that eternal life? And Jesus tells him to obey the commandments. He says, yeah, yeah, I've done that. And he says, okay, fine. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. And does he do it? No. Why? Because he loves his stuff, right? He's not really thinking about eternal life. 
He's thinking about this life right now. I've got all this stuff. I've accumulated all this stuff. I can't give this away. I can't go and be poor and have nothing. I can't do that. I, I've, I've been working and I've got this and I've accumulated this. I can't go back to zero. So it, it shows that his focus and his hope and his desire wasn't really for the age to come, but for this age and in accomplishing and having all the things that he wanted to have. And so Jesus says, verse 24, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I've told you this before, and you've probably heard this one time or another, but you've probably heard like a preacher say that there was a, a gate, right? The eye of the needle, and a camel had to unpack all of its stuff and like kind of crawl to get through the eye of the needle. That makes a really good preacher story, a good illustration, but archaeologists said there really was no gate like that called the eye of the needle. Jesus is really kind of being ironic here, right? We know what an eye of a needle is, right? It's tiny. It's not a gate in a wall. It's a needle with a tiny little hole in it. And a camel would have an easier time going through the eye of the needle than a rich person would in entering the kingdom of God. And the disciples heard this. Of course, they were astonished, right? Because it wasn't a gate that a camel would just have to unpack his stuff or the I guess the camel couldn't do it himself, but that's another story. Uh, but so they were astonished, and they said, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. It's very difficult. The more ambitiously we attack a list of things we want to have and a list of things we want to accomplish and a list of things that we want to accumulate, the more difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 27, then Peter said in reply, see, we... The apostles, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? You know, it's interesting, and we'll talk more about this next week, but Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't chastise them for that question, does he? In fact, that, that book I was reading a couple weeks ago, he made the same point, that, that Jesus doesn't say, what a, what a horrible materialistic question that is. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, there's so much in that one phrase that we could just be like, whoa, wait a second, what, what do you mean by that? And what do you mean by that, Jesus? But I, I want to I zoom in on this idea of in the new world. Now, the Greek word there is on the next slide, palagenesia, and it's it's two words, palin, which is anew, or again, or to take things back. And then the second word, and you can probably already see it, genesis. What, what do we get from that? Genesis. Genesis, right? So again, or anew, and then genesis, right? What is genesis? It's the beginning, right? The beginning of something, the creation of something. And so it is a regeneration or a recreation. Isn't that interesting? That Jesus says, that his disciples say, Jesus, we've given everything away. We left our families. We followed you. We left our careers. You know, I, my dad had a good fishing business and we left and, you know, here we are with you. And we left everything. And what are we going to have? And he says, in the new world, you will have everything. What do you, what do you mean by the new world? Different translations translate that differently. Uh, one, the new, new American Standard and the King James say the regeneration. That's good, right? Palangenesia. 
is re, again, anew, Genesis, generate, create, so regeneration, or the message says the recreation of the world. The NIV says the renewal of all things. I like that. Uh, the new world, ESV, of course. New Living Translation says the world, when the world is made new. Now that's interesting, isn't it? And, and we don't typically think that way, and we'll talk about 2 Peter 3 in just a minute because I know some people are asking that question, but But Jesus says, when everything is made new, when the regeneration comes, when the recreation comes, when everything is recreated, the poor, those who've left everything to follow me, you will be taken care of. And isn't that exactly what we've been talking about all throughout this series? Isn't that what the Beatitudes are all about? Isn't that what the psalmist is saying? He's saying, listen, I know that right now in the present In the present, it hurts and you're poor and you're afflicted and you've given up and you're suffering and you're you're being slapped on the cheek and you're being forced to go a mile or two and you're, you're praying for your enemies and you're enduring this present, but the future light is so bright you can't even imagine it. When all things are made new, in the new world, in the regeneration. And again, we don't typically think like that. And some people might ask as we go through this lesson tonight, what difference does it make? What's going to happen exactly when Jesus comes back? And I would say what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that if we don't have a firm grasp on what the future holds, it will corrupt our good morals. Because we ambitiously chase after the things of this life And Jesus says, no, stop. Stop feeling like your time to enjoy God's blessings is running out because it's not. And if you're a slave and you've never once tasted freedom or you're poor and you've never once tasted good food or you're persecuted and afflicted and you've never once seen seen the beauty and the majesty and the wonderful things that are all around but you've never experienced it or seen it or tasted it or heard it you will in the regeneration in the new world when the world is made new and and again and I think it's important to point out just as we talked about last week when we talked about resurrection that words are important. And Jesus uses the word palagenesia, and, and it means what it, what it means, right? It means renewal or restoration. It means to take something back, palin, to take something back to what it was before. Now, if, if I said, you know, if, if somebody got a different car, right? Like if you sold your car and then you went and you bought another car and then you told somebody you restored your car, or you renewed your car, would you say that? Would you say, you said, man, your, your car looks different. And you say, yeah, I renewed it. Did, did you renew it? You say, yeah, I restored it. You, what is that? You didn't restore it. That's a different car. You had a Chevy. This is a Ford. That's a different car, right? You, didn't, you don't use the word renew or restore when you're talking about replacing something. God is in the business of restoration. God is in the business of redemption. God is in the business of renewal. And Jesus says that there is coming a palingenesia. There is coming a renewal of all things. Okay, verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold 
and will inherit eternal life. Now, I'm not going to pretend I know exactly what that inheritance looks like or what that inheritance means, but I can't wait to receive it, right? But if we're willing to give up now and to sacrifice now and to suffer now and to be the enough now and to say, I don't have to have that now, I don't have to enjoy that now. I don't have to experience that now. Again, that's not saying it's wrong to experience or to have or to whatever. But if we're never willing and we're ambitiously chasing after all of the experiences and we're rushing through the buffet line to say, I got to get it all. I've got to be first. You all can have all y'all. Sorry. All y'all can have the leftovers, right? I got I to gotta be first, Jesus says. But many who are first will be what? Last. And the last, first. In the renewal, in the regeneration, in the new world, that's Jesus' term, not mine, in the palingenesia, the last will be first. Those who have left family and houses and lands, they will be first. The slave will be first. The sufferer will be first. The Anav will be first. Look at Romans chapter 8, because this is an incredibly important text. And if you were in my Romans class last quarter, we, we spent a lot of time talking about this. But Romans 8 and verse 12, Paul writes, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Sons of God. Now, that's important. If you underline or highlight in your Bible, you might circle that or highlight that or underline that. You are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as what? Sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's his whole point right here, isn't it? If you have the Spirit of God and you walk by the Spirit of God and not by the flesh, then you are God's children, specifically God's sons, because God's sons are heirs. That means if you're a woman, you're also God's sons. I, I know that doesn't make sense, but in the sense of being an heir, you are an heir. You are an heir. And isn't that what we've been talking about this whole quarter? Inheritance? And we'll talk more about that next week. But you've been adopted as sons. You are sons of God. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with whom? Christ. I mean, that almost seems like blasphemous to say, doesn't it? Let's get right down to it. To say we are fellow heirs with Christ. Whatever the Messiah inherits, we, we inherit with him. Whatever the Messiah reigns over, we reign over with him because we are co-heirs with Christ. Provided, though, provided, here's the if, provided we what? Suffer. The enough. The meek. Those who turn the cheek and go the extra mile and pray for those who persecute them. We suffer with him in order that we may also be what? glorified with him. You remember we did a whole series on glory, and glory means to be lifted up to an exalted position, one that reigns 
a ruler like kings and princes and princesses and queens. Royalty has glory. We will be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, see, that's what we say, endure the present in light of the future, right? Sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. The ESV says revealed to us. The word there is ace. If you've done a lot of studying on like Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, ace for the forgiveness of your sins. It means unto, right? For, to this purpose. The suffering that we're enduring will not compare with the glory that is to be revealed toward us, for us. Isn't that good? It's saying when, when Jesus returns... When Jesus is revealed, then you will be glorified with the Christ. You will be a co-heir with him. If you suffer with him, you'll be glorified with him. This glory will be revealed for you, toward you. Not just to you like you'll see it, but you'll experience it. Verse 19, for the creation, here's where it gets interesting. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, in the text, who are the sons of God? Right, the church, right? We are. That's what he's been saying all along. Verse 14, if you're led by the Spirit of God, you're sons of God. You've received the adoption as sons. We are children of God, verse 16. So the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, man, there's so much there, but why would we, the sons of God, children of God, why would we have to be revealed Aren't we here in the creation? Yeah, but not, not as we will be. Not in glory with Christ to reign with him, right? And then he says the creation is waiting for that. So we're not the, in this text, we're not the creation, right? We're not the creation because we're the sons of God. That's the, the sons of God and then there's the creation. And I don't think he means people because if he means people, then it has to be people other than the sons of God that are waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. And the only other people are non-Christians. And I don't think he means non-Christians are waiting around for us to be revealed as glorious reigners with Christ. Do you? I think he means creation like creation, like the created material universe. The creation, he says, waits with eager longing. The creation, he says, was subjected to futility. The creation was cursed, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in what? Hope. Isn't that that beautiful? The creation has hope. The creation is eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That, verse 21, that the creation itself will be what? Set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, again, I'm not going to pretend like I know exactly what Paul has in mind here, but he says that the creation will experience the same sort of freedom from bondage that our mortal bodies will experience. That right now, our mortal bodies are subject to decay, right? They are in bondage to corruption. They they get old, they wear out, they die. 
But when we receive our new body, as we talked about last week, it'll be immortal and imperishable. It'll be perfect in every way. It'll be set free from its bondage to corruption. Paul seems to believe that our hope and the hope of the entire creation is that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Now, again, I know for me, when I was growing up, that's not anything that was ever taught to me. Like that seems like, what are you even saying, Paul? Isn't that what he's saying? That this creation right now, and we know that by looking around at it, all of it, everything is in decay. But Paul says it's not a decay and a futility that is hopeless. It's one that is full of hope because the creation itself is longing to be set free. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Well, what does that mean? The pains of childbirth. It means there's something painful happening right now, but childbirth is one of those pains that we know that it's leading to something better. There's something wonderful and awesome that's just around the corner, but there's pain that's being endured and suffering right now. And Paul says that in the entire creation, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. When our bodies are redeemed, then we will be revealed, that's the words he uses, right? We will be revealed in the glory that is to come, and not just ourselves, but the entire creation will be set free and will experience the same sort of glory that we experience in our glorious body. Verse 24, for in this hope we are saved. See, this is why this is so incredibly important. This isn't just, you know, hey, it's kind of fun to talk about, you know, let's kind of talk about what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. It's just kind of fun to have a conversation, but it doesn't really matter. It really does matter. Paul says, in this hope, in what hope? In the hope that the creation is longing for something better that the creation is subjected to futility, but that like childbirth is waiting for something better. In this hope we're saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for, he, for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with, here's one of our words, right? Patience. And we can wait with patience because we know and are confident about what's to come. Now, I promised you 2 Peter 3. We've got just a few minutes. 2 Peter 3, verse 3. So Peter says that people are going to come along that are going to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. You Christian people, you've been saying Jesus is going to come back. Jesus will be revealed. Something better is coming. And, and it just hasn't happened. And they'll just scoff about it. He says, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, knowing their own sinful desires. They'll say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning, right? It's, it's, it's all just keeps going. And you said it was going to end. All this pain and suffering is going to come to an end and glorious reign. And you've been saying that for 2,000 years now. You know, where, where is it? You know, you, you've been saying that and they'll scoff. He says, for they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Now, what deluge is he talking about? 
the flood, right? Noah's flood. He's saying, but isn't that interesting? He says the world that existed in Noah's day, it perished. We don't normally think of it that way, but that's true, right? The world of Noah's day is gone. It doesn't mean the earth was annihilated from existence. He just means that that world is gone. And everything that people were doing and all the evil that they had accumulated and all the things that they were up to, they were doing all kinds of stuff and they were just going on about their business, doing all of these things, and it's gone. And that world that existed is gone. It perished. Verse 7, But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Paul says, or Peter says rather, that just like the world existed before the flood, this world exists now. And that there's a day of judgment coming in which the ungodly will be destroyed. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And that's an important point. There's a textual variant there, but the best manuscripts say exposed, and that's important. Because Peter says that right now, it's like, the heavens, right? And here he doesn't mean where God lives. He means the sky and all of the heavenly bodies of the sky, everything that's kind of like a veil between us and God, it will all dissolve, right? It'll all be burned up. In fact, Paul's not even, or Peter is not really talking about the earth being destroyed or burned up. Here he's specifically talking about the sky being burnt. Why would God burn up the sky? It's like this veil that's between us and God. And the veil will be torn away and dissolved and the earth will be exposed to God's judgment. Right now, everybody, the ungodly and the wicked, they feel like they can hide. They don't see God. I can do whatever I want to. God, you say you're coming back. I'm just going to keep on doing what I'm doing. And Peter says, it's not going to always be that way. There's going to be a day and all of this curtain that separates us from God will be dissolved and God will be revealed and his judgment will be revealed and fire will be revealed and the ungodly will be destroyed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what things? The sky, the the heavenly bodies. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I don't, I don't know what our new earth, as Jesus said, the renewal. I don't know what the new earth will be like. But, but I know that's what we're waiting for and hoping for, trusting in that there's a day of judgment coming in which creation will be set free and all of the ungodly and death itself will be destroyed And all things will be made new. And God and humans will be fully reconciled. Heaven and earth, Ephesians 1 and verse 10. That's the mission of Jesus, to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth. And we are waiting for God to make all things new. Will it be different than the world is now? Of course it will be. All things will be different. 
and set free. But if we don't have a firm grasp on that, then we'll race through life trying to be first, not realizing that it's the meek, it's the last who will be first. We might say, say it this way, that we should practice being last. <laughs> we might even say we should be ambitious to be last because in the new world, what, whatever the new world will be like, we know this for sure, that the last will be first. Let's pray. Most Holy Father, we are we're thankful for the promises we have in Christ Jesus. We're thankful for the hope that we have of resurrection and of our inheritance. But mostly, Father, we look forward to being with you forever, seeing you face to face. When the heavens are melted and all things are exposed and revealed, Father, we long for that day. Help us, Father, to rest and to worship, and to work, and to serve, and to love in light of the future, no matter what we endure in the present. Father, we thank you for Jesus in whom we have this hope, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.